The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. If you've been listening to true crime podcasts or watching documentary series for a while now, then you have likely heard about today's case before. The murder of Robert Wan is mystifying, mostly due to the secrecy of three men whose carefully crafted and unwavering statement of facts have never led to a resolution. Their statements and stories, despite never changing, have never seemed to align with the public's perception of the truth about what happened to Robert. Interestingly, even the court acknowledges this. And yet, no charges relating to Robert Wan's death have ever been laid. I will let you know that today's case discusses some exceptionally disturbing content, including the potential of sexual assault, so please be advised that listening to this story may not be for everyone. And with that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Robert Eric Wan was born on June 1st, 1974, to parents William and Amy. Robert was a fourth-generation Chinese immigrant whose great-grandparents emigrated from China in the 1930s. He was born in Manhattan, New York, but was raised mostly in Brooklyn alongside his brother. It didn't take very long before Robert's family could tell that he was an exceptional child, both in athletics and in intellect. His family supported his love for baseball and used their outings to the Mets games as wholesome family bonding time. It really made Robert happy, and it held the family very close together. They also supported Robert's love for learning. Certainly, it was a love that continued to flourish throughout his life. Robert Wan was named the class valedictorian in his high school and would go on to attend William and Mary University in Williamsburg, Virginia as a prestigious James Monroe Scholar. This scholars program, according to the information I found online, is offered to, quote, the most academically distinguished undergrads at the university, and it's awarded to students who demonstrate a concern for community and intellectual depth, curiosity, and devotion to learning for learning's sake. Personally, I don't think anyone who knew Robert could describe him any better. Those words were exactly who he was. Curious, a lifelong learner, an academic, but also an advocate for community and social justice. If you weren't already convinced that Robert Wan was a stand-up guy and frankly a distinguished citizen that his community was lucky to have, then let me tell you that his work didn't stop there. Robert took it upon himself to revive the university's 13 club, which was solely dedicated to random acts of kindness. It was in this club where Robert would meet one of his soon-to-be lifelong friends, Joseph Price. The two attended William and Mary, despite Joseph being a few years older than Robert, and they met when Joseph was in his senior year during the 1992-1993 academic year. These two would end up running in several circles together based on their shared moral and ethical principles, student government, leadership positions, honor society, and more, and they would eventually form a pretty close-knit group of friends who were all like-minded, equally ambitious, 
and passionate about community advocacy and social justice. Joseph Price graduated in 1993 with a degree in public policy before attending law school at the University of Virginia. He would go on to serve for a judge within the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Virginia and would dedicate his law career to LGBTQ2S rights advocacy. Just like his friend Joseph, Robert Wan would also graduate but in 1996 before also heading to law school but at the University of Pennsylvania and graduating with his Juris Doctor in 1999. When he graduated, he was awarded the Algernon Sidney Sullivan Award for Moral Distinction. Robert would also go on to serve for a judge in the U.S. District Court, this one being Eastern Virginia. And similarly to his friend Joseph, Robert would dedicate his law career to organizations and initiatives that he was passionate about. Robert would serve as general counsel for the Organization of Chinese Americans. He served as a board member for the Asian Pacific Bar Association Educational Fund. He was treasurer of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association DC and many, many other things. He mentored law students. He put spare change into random people's parking meters and was one of the most sound, selfless, and ethically pure people I think anyone who knew him had known. In 2002, Robert Wan would meet his soon-to-be wife, Catherine Yu, at a conference in Philadelphia. Catherine was also a distinguished attorney, and she was prompted by a colleague to invite Robert to this conference. When the two finally met in person, they had an instant, mutual attraction towards each other. They would end up spending the entire night chatting at dinner, and Robert inquisitively prodded at Catherine to get to know her better. He would learn that Catherine's parents were immigrants from Korea, and that she grew up in Chicago. And after this conference, he also learned that she would be flying back home, pretty far away from him. But the two were motivated to stay connected. After many trips back and forth to temporarily close the distance, the couple were falling for each other quite deeply. However, as things became more serious, Catherine had a confession that she had yet to disclose to Robert, which in her mind, might be a potential deal breaker. So when she thought the time was right, she decided it was only the right thing to do to muster up the courage and come clean to Robert about her secret. Catherine confided in Robert that she was diagnosed with lupus, an autoimmune disease that results in a myriad of symptoms. No two cases are exactly the same, but each can be wildly debilitating. It took bravery and strength, but it turned out that Catherine's fear of Robert wanting to end their relationship over this was entirely unfounded, and it was unknown to her at the time, but he liked her as much as she liked him. If it wasn't evident already by the romantic love letters exchanged and the constant visits he made to her hometown, it would become evident after she disclosed her diagnosis. Instead of ending the relationship like Catherine feared, Robert decided it was the perfect time to take things a step further. He invited Catherine to join him and his family on a month-long trip to China and unconditionally opened his heart to her, being very ready to show his commitment. It wouldn't be too long after they arrived back home in the United States before the couple got engaged and they would be married on June 7th of 2003, only six days after Robert's 29th birthday. The couple were very much happy and looking forward to their future. 
they cooperated with each other to tackle their busy legal schedules, all while making time for the love that they shared. They spoke about alternative ways of starting a family together to mitigate the effects Catherine might experience from being pregnant and suffering with lupus. They also made arrangements to move together to Virginia to be closer, and they very much enjoyed combining their big dreams into one shared life. Eventually, Robert would go on to work in commercial real estate law as an attorney with the Washington, D.C. firm of Covington and Burling, all while supporting his passion for community service, because this firm allowed him to take on a lot more pro bono work than he already was. After the two settled in Oakton, Virginia, Robert Wan was on a mission to continue his community service in new ways. In 2006, he wanted to leave his position at Covington and Burling, and instead, he was going to take a position as general counsel for Radio Free Asia. Radio Free Asia is an organization that is government-funded and non-for-profit, and they work to publish uncensored news and information regarding Asian affairs. Evidently, Asian rights advocacy was a huge part of Robert's career, and he would decide to make this leap and take the position despite it being a little bit of a pay cut. But he was selfless, and Catherine, his new wife, was endlessly supportive, and the couple were financially stable, so there was no real reason for Robert not to pursue this avenue if it's what made him happy. Once Robert took the position at Radio Free Asia, the couple's routine was pretty straightforward. Every morning before work, they would commute together into Washington, D.C. via public transit before parting their separate ways, usually with a kiss, to their respective offices. And this is exactly how the morning of August 2nd in 2006 went, except instead of commuting back home together, Robert had made arrangements with Joseph Price, his former friend from college, to stay at his house that night, as he happened to live in the DC area. Robert's reasoning for wanting to stay the night with a friend was that he would be attending a continuing legal education course seminar that afternoon and afterwards intended on introducing himself personally to the night shift employees at Radio Free Asia. Given that night shift workers work at night, Robert, two weeks prior to August 2nd, decided to reach out to Joseph Price about staying the night in his home in Washington, D.C., because it would be much easier to do that than trying to commute back to Oakton, Virginia, where he lived that late on public transit. Kathy was okay with this plan, and she had even known Joseph Price. The couple had visited his home a few times with his partner, Victor Zaborski, who was a senior marketing manager at the Milk Processors Education Program, you know, the got milk people. Victor and Joseph had more recently brought in an additional male into their home, someone named Dylan Ward, and he was brought into a new type of relationship for them. The three men were polyamorous. Dylan was a graduate from Georgetown, and he seemed to bounce between careers, according to some of the sources I read. However, it was no indication of being any less stable to the couple. The three of them ended up being well-respected by Robert and Catherine, and had even attended Robert's 30th birthday back in 2004. Before then, Joseph and Victor also went to Robert and Kathy's wedding in 2003. Given this history, again, Catherine had no issue with Robert staying over at their house, and it made logistical sense. It seemed much safer than commuting across state lines late at night. 
Robert Juan and Joseph emailed back and forth trying to organize the logistics of this stay, and Joseph was to anticipate Robert's arrival at his home in DC around 11pm on August 2nd. When that day arrived, it seemed like the plan was perfectly ready to be carried out. Around 9.30pm, Robert phoned Kathy to let her know that he was on his way to Radio Free Asia from the Continuing Legal Education Seminar, and that he'd be meeting the night shift workers soon. He then told her that he would grab a taxi back to Joseph's house for the evening. Unfortunately, this would be the last time that Robert and Kathy would ever speak. Around 10.24pm, Robert then called Joseph Price, presumably to let him know he was in a cab and on the way. According to Joseph Price, Victor Zaborski, and Dylan Ward, Robert arrived via taxi to their DuPont Circle home around 10.30pm. Their house has four distinct levels, the main floor with a front entrance and a back entrance onto a carefully crafted patio, both fitted with a door chime and alarm system, the second floor where there was a washroom, Dylan Ward had a bedroom, and the guest room for Robert was set up there as well. The third floor, where Victor and Joseph shared a master bedroom, and then there was finally a basement, where they actually had an additional tenant, an acquaintance to the polyamorous couple, a woman named Sarah Morgan. At the time of Robert's arrival, Victor was already in bed watching Project Runway. However, Joseph Price and Dylan Ward were ready to greet Robert in the kitchen on the main floor. The three of them drank some water together in the kitchen and caught up briefly, chatting for a few minutes before showing Robert to his guest room. It was then when Joseph Price joined Victor in the third floor bedroom and went to bed, and Dylan Ward departed to his own bedroom near Robert's on the second floor before reading for five or so minutes, taking a sleeping pill, and then going to bed himself. Dylan said that he last heard Robert exit his bedroom, take a shower in the bathroom on that same floor, and then return back to his own bedroom, all before falling asleep. Robert's Blackberry, his cell phone, reflected two final email drafts around 11.05 and 11.07pm, neither of which were ever sent. One of these emails was to his wife, and another was confirming a work lunch order for the next day, but this would be the last activity that was ever recorded on Robert's phone. Joseph Price and Victor Zaborski would later testify that they were awakened by the door chime. This indicated that someone had opened one of the exterior doors into the house. However, by all accounts, it seems like their other tenant, Sarah Morgan, had been away that evening, so they just thought it was her and disregarded the sound. But as they were drifting back to sleep, they reportedly heard a series of, quote, low grunts and a scream, which prompted them to jump out of bed and run down to the second floor to investigate. Once they opened the door to Robert's guest room, they found him laying on the bed with stab wounds. Joseph Price then told Victor to go back upstairs into their bedroom and call 911, which he did at 11.49pm. DC emergency 911 operator 6752, do you need police, fire, or ambulance? Oh, What's wrong, ma'am? We, uh, we had someone that was in our house, evidently, and they stabbed somebody. Okay, somebody's inside the house now? I don't know. We heard... Are they bleeding? You see someone yes, bleeding? Someone is bleeding in our house. Okay, where's they bleeding from? Uh, I think he was... I think in the stomach. In the stomach? Is he cautious? Uh, Calm down for me. I'm going to send some help, okay? Female or male? 
It's a male. He's a friend of ours. He was spent, he's spending the night with us. Okay. And who was the person that stabbed him? Do you know? Is, he, is, is he conscious? We need an ambulance. Ma'am, listen to me. He's not conscious. He's not conscious at all? No. We need someone right now. Is he breathing? Listen, listen to me. Calm down. I'm going to help you. Okay. Is he breathing? I'm upstairs and he's downstairs. I don't know. Okay. Who's downstairs with him? My partner is downstairs with him right now. He told me to go upstairs and call the police immediately. Okay, who is the person? Okay, I'm sending paramedics and the police. This was all the while Joseph Price allegedly knelt down beside Robert and attempted to stop the bleeding. The place where, wherever he was stabbed at, I need you to get a dry cloth, okay? And just apply pressure to that area. If he was, wherever he was stabbed at on his body, I need you to take a towel downstairs while you're waiting for the paramedics to arrive and just apply pressure. Even if the rag or towel is saturated with blood, just get another towel and put it on top, but never lift the first towel off the area. Hold it on. Once it gets filled up with blood, just put another towel on top of that and just apply pressure until the paramedics arrive. It only took approximately five minutes for paramedics to arrive, followed by officers from the Metropolitan Police Department. As you heard on the 911 call, the operator told Victor to attempt CPR and to stop the bleeding from Robert's wounds. Given the situation, one would expect a harrowing scene at the home, covered in bloody towels, blood spatter, and, and chaos. However, when paramedics arrived at the home, what they found was nothing of the sort. Paramedics noticed that the behavior of all three men, Dylan, Joseph, and Victor, was unusual. None of them seemed overly frantic or upset, aside from Victor, who, wearing a white terry cloth robe, simply sat outside on the front porch. But even he seemed simply upset, not frantic by any means, as if he had tried to just rescue someone who was murdered in his own home which was obviously very different from his temperament as you heard it in the 911 call. In addition to that, the scene inside of the home was remarkably very calm. When asked by paramedics what was going on inside, Victor only replied that there was a stabbing and the victim was on the second floor. Paramedics Jeff Baker and Tracy Weaver passed by Dylan Ward on their way up the stairs, who was coming out of the second floor bathroom, also in a white terry cloth bathrobe. When Dylan was asked what happened, he simply pointed to the bedroom where Robert was, without words, and then departed to his own bedroom. The paramedics opened the door to Robert's guest room and observed him with no signs of life, as reported in the statement of facts read in court. Regardless, it would be decided to transport him to hospital and begin some resuscitation efforts. But unfortunately, Robert had succumbed to his injuries and would be pronounced dead at the George Washington University Hospital after every attempt from hospital and paramedic intervention. Joseph Price then made a phone call to Robert's wife, Catherine, telling her that Robert was attacked and had been stabbed twice, quote, in the back. Kathy immediately called Robert's parents, who had actually recently moved closer to the couple all the way from New York just to be with them, but by the time they all arrived in hospital, it was too late. It was here, actually, that Kathy discovered Robert was stabbed more than twice, and it was not in the back, but then I'm sure that those details were much less important than the news of her beloved husband's senseless death. But in hindsight, those details certainly were important. The initial scene when paramedics arrived was quite shocking, as I had mentioned. 
they found Joseph Price sitting on the bed near Robert, in his underwear, with his back to the door. According to one report I read, when paramedics asked what happened, as they did with the other people living in the home, Joseph simply replied that he heard a scream, and then said literally nothing else. The paramedics reportedly later testified to being sort of creeped out and anxious around Joseph, feeling like they needed to position themselves in a way where they could tend to Robert and his injuries, but also keep an eye on Joe. And this would turn out to be only the first of many uncomfortable and eerie feelings they would get, the next being when they surveyed the scene. Despite the presumed and frankly expected chaos that the paramedics expected to observe, what they found was actually very little blood or mess on or around Robert. His abdomen did have a thin film of blood on it that possibly looked like it could have bore the impression of a kitchen towel or some item that was used to wipe blood away or compress the torso. But other than that, it was remarkably clean in there. Robert was laying on a pristinely made bed with blue striped sheets, and the top sheets and covers were folded down at a nearly perfect 45-degree angle, almost if it was like he was staying in a hotel. This is typically how Joseph and the other men in the house claim to prepare a room for a guest. But even more interestingly was that Robert was found laying on top of the sheets and covers. It almost looked like he was placed there after the bed had been perfectly made. The only blood found on the bed totaled to be about 100 cc's of volume, or about 100 milliliters, which is frankly a very underwhelming amount for a stabbing. The blood had actually seeped through the bedding below without being smeared or disturbed, as if a perfect stream of Robert's blood had been allowed to flow from his wounds for an extended period of time and resulted in two approximately softball-sized blood stains. Like I mentioned, he looked as if he was placed in position. He was found with his arms essentially perfectly positioned by both of his sides and his head on the pillow lying face up. I don't know if the word eerie does this scene quite enough justice, but just because it was clean doesn't mean what happened to Robert was any less serious, and inside of his body, his organs were much more of a mess than the room he was in was. Robert had been stabbed three times through the front of his grey and white William and Mary t-shirt. One of these wounds was reportedly so large that paramedics were able to stick a finger inside of it. When Metropolitan Police arrived at the scene, they also noted a strange lack of any signs of struggle. Again, Robert's belongings were organized nicely and not ruffled through, and his cell phone and two wallets, one being a dummy that he kept in case he got robbed, as well as a nice watch, were all laying on a bedside table. Despite the three men in the house insisting at this time that a random intruder must have come in and attacked Robert, to police, this eliminated one of the only possible motives that a random intruder would have, robbery. But we will get there. Police would also find a black-handled steel kitchen knife belonging to a knife block downstairs on the nightstand near Robert, closest to the door exiting the room. There was a visible amount of blood on it, which did belong to Robert, as well as some cut chest hairs and a globule of human fat or tissue, but there were no fibers from Robert's t-shirt or blood even on the cutting edge. This knife initially might have looked like it would be the murder weapon, 
Again, it was covered in blood and found really close to the victim. However, police were actually able to rule that out quite quickly. The first clue to this knife not being the murder weapon was where it was taken from. Given this knife had come from a knife block in the kitchen, this random intruder would have not only been not interested in robbery, but also decided to break into the DuPont Circle home without a plan. This weapon was acquired opportunistically, which was suspicious enough, but then it was discovered that the wounds Robert sustained did not match up at all in size or in shape to that knife. The blade of this knife was much longer than the depth of Robert's stab wounds. Each wound was pretty uniform in size, length, and distribution, and so they would have been able to make these measurements quite easily. Dr. Lois R. Goslinotsky from the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for the District of Columbia, when conducting the autopsy, found three distinct ones in addition to a broken blood vessel in Robert's eye, indicating that he had possibly been smothered in addition to being stabbed. Like I mentioned, despite the scene being clean, what happened to Robert was very, very messy. There was one stab wound to Robert's lung, one that perforated his heart at the aortic root and ended up cutting one of his coronary arteries, shutting down his heart and rendering him unconscious within approximately one minute. This was identified to be the fatal wound. The third stab wound involved the diaphragm and some of the other abdominal organs, including a large vein. Robert would have been bleeding a lot, and he would have been bleeding out very fast. As I mentioned, these stab wounds were pretty uniform in size and shape, but they were also not very far apart from each other on Robert's body. As described, each one was oriented in the exact same way, with a pretty uniform distance, and it was quite easy to identify how exactly the knife entered Robert's body. Unsurprisingly, each one was exactly the same with the sharp edge pointed towards Robert's right shoulder and the blunt edge being diagonal towards Robert's left side. It seems like these stab wounds were methodical. Robert certainly was not stabbed in a frenzy. At least it didn't appear to be that way. Even more interestingly, police did find an additional knife set in the room of Dylan Ward when they went to search the house. That knife set was missing a four and a half inch blade which would have been more consistent with Robert's wounds. They were all approximately four and a half inches deep. Unfortunately, however, this knife has never been found. It's almost as if the knife from the kitchen was the only one that was ever meant to be found. Upon further surveillance, on the floor piled near Robert's overnight bag, police found another white terry cloth towel with some small blood stains on it. However, aside from this towel and the stains on Robert's bed that I previously described, the room was entirely spotless. Even these blood stains on the towel were only about two and a half to three inches in length, which is, again, hardly the amount of blood anticipated when attempting to stop bleeding from wounds to the aortic arch and major abdominal veins. The scene of Robert's room aligned with his nature of being clean, tidy, and kempt. Everything for him was always orderly. He always folded his clothes away and never left a mess, he methodically always wore a t-shirt and shorts to bed, and he always put in his mouth guard at the end of every night. And all of this was true. Robert was found in a t-shirt and shorts, and his mouth guard was found in his mouth. He was methodical, organized, and loved his routine. 
However, the scene did not align with the frenzy that a typical stabbing attack usually entails. There was nothing besides the towel on the floor and Robert's dead body that would indicate that anyone had been attacked in the first place. The room was essentially spotless, and the amount of blood on or around him was shockingly little, almost as if the scene had been cleaned and Robert was perfectly immobile during the entire event. It would come out later that this conjecture may not be entirely speculation after all, though. In fact, police would go on to conclude that there was no physical evidence of any movement at all by Robert during the attack. And to me, the first sign of this is the blood stains that were perfectly uniform and seeped through the bed he was laying on, as if he'd been laying there for an extended period of time. The second sign was a total and complete lack of any defensive wounds on Robert's body, no sign of fighting back against his attacker, no bruising, no scratches. It was almost as if he was laying on his back the entire time, entirely still, unable to move, being stabbed carefully with careful positioning of these wounds before being cleaned and placed right back into position. When conducting Robert's autopsy, Dr. Goslinotsky made note of a particularly interesting finding that many people say aligns with the fact that Robert was in fact immobile. He was intentionally paralyzed. The autopsy report states that there were several needle puncture marks on Robert's body, on his left ankle, the left side of his neck, his chest, his hand, his forearm, all which the medical examiner described as being the result of medical intervention. As I mentioned, there were many attempts to resuscitate Robert both by hospital staff and the paramedics, despite them observing him with no signs of life. However, according to the paperwork done by those same staff, when documenting and detailing what interventions they had used to try and revive Robert Wan, it was not apparent from any of this paperwork that all, or even most, of those puncture wounds came from medical staff. If you didn't think that was suspicious, then let me assure you that per the statement of facts read in court, pretty much all legal officials on this case do. However, what made this inconclusive was Robert's toxicology reports. His results came back surprisingly unremarkable so we can only speculate if Robert was drugged and immobilized, and possibly what was used to do so. What paralytic agent could have been injected into his body that would metabolize so quickly it would be undetectable only the next day when the autopsy was conducted? We can also speculate why Robert may have been immobilized, and there is some evidence to suggest a possible motive, although it is riddled with speculation. In addition to the needle puncture marks, the most interesting finding in the autopsy report, in my opinion, were the results of a rape kit conducted on Robert Wan. What was found were several incidences of semen on Robert, and I'll spare you the details of where they were all located, but for your information, you can pretty much assume it was found in almost every cavity. What sticks out to me though, is that all of the semen, all of it was tested, and all of it belonged to himself, including the amount that was found in his mouth. So, if Robert Wan was presumably incapacitated after completing his entire nighttime routine, evidence for by the night guard in his mouth, 
then when and why would he have ejaculated all over himself? And how does this fit into a stabbing? The details of this story are clearly very fuzzy, and the testimonies given by all three men in the house certainly don't help, because they are very apparently incomplete. But we'll get there. Shortly after Robert was pronounced dead, the entire house on DuPont Circle was labeled as a crime scene, as it should be. All three men, Joseph Price, Dylan Ward, and Victor Zaborski, were asked to remain in the living room while police searched the house under the observation of Sergeant Charles Patrick and Officer Gregory Alamein from the Metropolitan PD. It was during this search where they found the knives belonging to Dylan Ward, and they also found that one was missing. However, also during these searches, police elected to bring in bloodhounds to search for any more trace amounts of blood throughout the property. There was a small trace amount of blood found in the lint trap of the dryer on the second floor of the home, and some near an outside drain in the backyard. I'm not sure what the results were of this blood if it was even tested, but to many people, this possibly indicates that someone washed themselves off while covered in blood and then laundered their clothes, which would be corroborated by the presence of both Victor Zaborski and Dylan Ward being freshly showered at the time when first responders arrived. More interestingly, police would find various items that were clearly personal and private belonging to the polyamorous couple and relating to their sex life. Without going into too many details, only what is really relevant, police found all sorts of items that related to a sex life full of BDSM, most of which were found in Dylan's room. However, of relevancy to this case, police also found a machine known as the milking machine, designed to be placed on male genitalia and induce forced ejaculation. Many people use this finding to piece together the incapacitation of Robert and why his semen was found all over his body cavities. People think that whatever happened that night, that Robert Wan was forced to ejaculate all over himself after being incapacitated by these three men, and then somehow, some way, was stabbed to death for whatever reason. But of course, these men were insistent that these items were personal and just shared between them in their polyamorous relationship. In fact, this wasn't the only finding that the men attempted to explain away well before anyone even made any connections to the crime. Might I add, the moment they found this milking machine was not the moment that the internet and the courts started speculating about its use on Robert. But again, all three men right away began denying its potential use in any crime that may or may not have occurred on their behalf. But like I mentioned, this wasn't the first time they would try to explain something away before they were even asked about it. For example, Joseph Price, when sitting next to the body of Robert Wan at the time paramedics arrived, told police that he found the knife on Robert's stomach, the same one that would later be determined not to be the murder weapon, and so he moved it to the bedside table. Strangely, without being prompted, he told police that they'd surely find his DNA on the weapon, but not quote-unquote the real killers, because they probably used gloves. This comment was not only unnecessary, but jarring, given that if this was the murder weapon, and Joseph said he moved it, and they were able to rule him out as a suspect, 
then they would have gathered that his DNA on the knife was justified. There was no reason for him to make this comment, and it only made police more suspicious. At one point, when police were searching the home, the officers observing the three men sitting in the living room picked up on something strange. Dylan Ward began to speak up. Whatever he said was never described in any court documents I read, but what was in the court documents was that he was quickly met with a glare from Joseph Price. In the official statement of facts, the officers in this room interpreted this as a signal of quote-unquote forbidding. Interestingly, it was then that Joseph Price himself began to speak up, making statements about the events that unfolded that night, leading up to the discovery of Robert Wan covered in stab wounds. Joseph would subsequently do most of the talking that evening to the officers, being apparently designated this role, and he even conducted a house tour while, once again, explaining the events of the evening to the officers present. Despite any weird, unprovoked statements and strange behavior observed by the officers in the home, when all three men were transported separately to the Metropolitan Police Department around 12.30 a.m. and interviewed separately, they all stuck to the same story. Joseph Price, Victor Zaborski, and Dylan Ward were all insistent that Robert Wan must have been attacked by a random intruder. They explained hearing a door chime, which again, Dylan Ward was reportedly asleep for, and how the noise was attributed to the arrival back home of their basement tenant, Sarah Morgan. They all speculated that the intruder must have scaled their seven-foot back patio fence, a patio fence that is close to an alleyway that apparently people frequent in the area. And it was a patio that was carefully decorated with garden beds and furniture, they then speculated that this intruder, after reaching the inside of their backyard, must have entered into the house via the back door into the kitchen. They all believed that the rear door was possibly left unlocked, which is how the intruder must have gained entry, and which is also something that was restated during the house tour that Joseph Price conducted for police. Even further, he told police that the reason they didn't hear a second door chime when this random intruder left the residence after attacking Robert Wan was because when they entered, they must have left the back door slightly ajar, which when police were brought over to this door, it was conveniently slightly ajar. Unfortunately, the initial statements made by these men during their interviews at the Metropolitan Police Station were not recorded. However, per the statement of facts, it was only when the interviewing officers began getting a quote-unquote funny feeling about their statements not quite aligning with the scene they found inside of the home when they started to record these interviews. Police were getting an uneasy feeling about their stories, despite all three men having the exact same one which wasn't the issue. The issue was the details of these stories that police were not satisfied with, details that simply didn't sit right with them. Investigators would spend the better part of three weeks combing through the DuPont Circle home with meticulous detail. They would start removing floors, pieces of the walls, a chunk of the staircase, the washing machine, the sink traps, and more. Police also collected fingerprints and photographic evidence, but none of it resulted in the identification of any other people besides the men who already lived in the house 
being in the home. And this was true even when cross-referenced with known home intruders and serial offenders in the DC area. Nobody except for the people who lived there and Robert Wan had been in that home. And if they were, they didn't leave a single trace of evidence behind. During these more detailed searches, it was noted that the back patio fence, the same one that all three men stated an intruder likely scaled to break into their home and attack Robert, was completely undisturbed. Alongside the garden beds and all the other patio furniture that was out there, there was no evidence that somebody had climbed over a seven-foot fence and dropped down into the garden bed below. In fact, there was no evidence to suggest anyone scaled it at all. There were piles of dust and cobwebs along the top of the fence that showed no evidence of being wiped away accidentally by someone brushing up against the top of it. In addition to this, like I mentioned, police were never able to recover the true murder weapon, given the knife placed at the scene was identified not to be it. At this point, given the fact that robbery was ruled out as a possible motive, given that Robert's expensive belongings were left completely untouched, and none of the other men or their belongings were targeted at all, as well as the opportunistic nature of the crime, given this random intruder didn't come prepared with a weapon, and the scene was set up to look like they grabbed one from the kitchen opportunistically, police were pretty confident that the three men's stories of a random intruder probably not true. In addition to all of this information planting doubt in the minds of law enforcement about the random intruder theory, once they had a chance to speak to Catherine, Robert's wife, they realized that nobody else in the world besides her and the other men in the house knew that Robert was staying there. Without a motive, this attack certainly seems targeted, but without anyone knowing where Robert was, there was only a select group of people who could have targeted him. Officers were pretty confident that it wouldn't be Kathy. By all accounts, including her own and those of her friends and family, the couple were very happy, very much in love, not at all struggling financially, and had no relationship issues that could have prompted a motive for her to target her husband. In addition, nobody in Robert's life could identify any known enemies, I can't overstate how well-loved he really was by his friends, family, and community. So who was left? Joseph Price, Victor Zaborski, and Dylan Ward. Now, I keep referencing an official statement of facts that was read in court about this case, but if you recall, at the beginning of today's episode, I also mentioned that no charges have ever been laid to implicate anyone in the murder of Robert Wan. It turns out that police were able to conclude, at the very least, that Joseph Price, Dylan Ward, and Victor Zaborski were all hiding something. If it wasn't obvious by their suspicious behavior, it was pretty obvious by the evidence, or lack thereof, that they discovered. Unfortunately, law enforcement couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt exactly what these men were hiding, or else they would have likely pursued murder charges, but given the evidence, and given the scene they stumbled into, what they could prove was that the crime scene at the very least had been altered, and they came out and publicly stated this. Consequently, all three men would be charged with obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice, and face a bench trial on May 17, 2010. 
These charges were predicated on, quote, the government's claim that each participated in a scheme to prevent police from learning the true circumstances of Robert's death, unquote. The statement of facts that I've been referencing comes from these proceedings. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you some even more interesting details from this document. If you recall, the 911 placed by Victor Zaborski came in at about 11.49pm on August 2nd, 2006. However, Robert Wan's phone had two email drafts on it that were interrupted from being sent around 11.07pm. I use the term interrupted because I, like many others, have reason to believe that whatever happened to Robert began well before 11.49pm when the 911 call was placed. And neighbors would go on to corroborate the speculation, going on to make statements to police about hearing a scream around 11 or so at night. So with that, somewhere in this 32 minutes of time between Robert's last email draft not being sent and the 911 call actually being made, Robert Wan was stabbed to death after ejaculating all over himself and into his own mouth, and it was proposed that the crime scene was tidied up. Evidence for this comes in the form of Dylan and Victor being both freshly showered, wearing white terry cloth robes, and blood being found in places that indicated bloody clothes had recently been laundered, such as in the lint trap and near the drain outside. In my own opinion, with all three men in agreement to act in accordance with each other for their own best interests, I believe that 32 minutes is enough time to tidy a crime scene, do away with any incriminating evidence as long as they're all working together, leave the back door ajar to make it seem like an attacker got a quick getaway, throw some clothes in the laundry, come up with their story, designate who would be the one to tell it, and make sure whoever was covered in blood got a chance to shower all while leaving Robert, who was immobilized, to bleed almost perfect circles of blood pools down into the bedding below. The needle marks not aligning with the documentation provided by medical staff, the results of the rape kit conducted, the planted knife, it all paints one very fuzzy picture. And although the details might be a little bit unclear, because again, we still don't know what happened to Robert minute by minute. But even the trial judge, Judge Lynn Lebovitz, agreed that at the very least, it's obvious that this murder was not committed by a random intruder. And let me read you their statement as per the official statement of facts. Quote, I am persuaded by the trial evidence in its totality, and I find that the murder of Robert Wan was not committed by an intruder unknown to the defendants. My reasons for this conclusion are the evidence that there was no sign of forced entry, no items or property were disturbed within the home, no mark or disturbance was made in the dust or debris on the fence railing, nor the defendant's car or the plant beds inside the fence. Not a single item of value of the type commonly taken by burglars was taken, including a flat screen TV and laptop computer in view of the kitchen, as well as two wallets in plain view on the desk in the guest room. And the intruder had to have passed by Mr. Ward's room to get to the guest room, yet nobody entered Mr. Ward's room. Other reasons for my finding include that Mr. Wan was entirely immobile at the time of the stabbing, and the deliberate and methodical way in which the wounds were inflicted. 
Judge Lebovitz then goes on to discuss evidence from the defense, which included rebuttals against allegations that Robert was cleaned along with the scene and placed into position before 911 was called, by speculating that it's possible he was just sleeping on top of the covers and didn't wake up while he was being stabbed. Although this seems far-fetched, the defense thought it was pretty well within the realm of possibility, as Kathy, Robert's wife, did note that Robert used to be kind of embarrassed about his nighttime sweating, so he would often, as strange as it may seem, sleep on top of the covers during exceptionally warm nights. It's worth noting here that on the night the murder occurred, DC was experiencing a heat wave. However, Robert Wan simply being asleep and not waking up during the attack does not necessarily account for his total and complete lack of defensive wounds, and it does not account for his body position at the time he was found. Robert Wan, when found, looked like he was already ready to be placed inside of a coffin. That's how straight he was laying. Given all of this, the judge concludes by saying, quote, the circumstances of the commission of the murder itself are inconsistent with the defense position that an intruder killed Mr. Wan. Despite all of this, like I mentioned, no formal charges have ever been laid in the murder of Robert Wan. And despite the overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence, all three men have been able to continue living their lives as normal, more than likely knowing exactly what happened to Robert Wan, allegedly. Personally, I find this case very disturbing because Robert trusted Joseph Price as his friend. Robert was a do-gooder and a human rights advocate. He was trusting. He was kind. All he wanted to do was go to Joseph's house, go to sleep, wake up and go back to work the next day, and then go home to his wife. But instead, he was possibly sexually assaulted, intentionally paralyzed, and murdered. Even worse is his family has never seen justice. If you're interested in learning a little bit more of the finer details in this case, I highly recommend you check out a website called whomurderedrobertwan.com. The person or people who run this website are incredibly detail-oriented, and their publications will give you a very good starting background to dive into some of the information yourself. They also provide direct resources to the court documents and any other pieces of information that are relevant in this case. Like many people, I'm not exactly sure what to make of this one. I think I have my own opinions about who did it, but I don't exactly know how, let alone why. But I would really like to know what you think. What do you think happened to Robert Wan? I'll be interested to hear your thoughts, which you can share with me on my Instagram at crimeopediapod or via email at crimeopediapod at hotmail.com. If you're interested in hearing about a case on this show, you can let me know on my website in the case suggestion box at crimeopediapod.ca. I did the very best I could, but this case is kind of a confusing one, especially given all of the different pieces of evidence and the fact that somehow it still has no resolution. So I highly recommend that you check out some of my source material at crimopediapod.ca. That way, you can come to your own conclusions. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, everybody, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>